0: When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you, you can, can always, always go. Podcast.
1: That's not what the words are. Hello and welcome to episode three of L.A. Meekly, the podcast, all you loyal listeners. Hmm. <laughs> I mean listener (laughs) Uh, So today's, oh this is, I'm Daniel I'm Greg Who? I don't even know anymore This is the episode where we're going to talk about the downtown theater district Mm -hmm. Also
0: known as the Broadway theater district
1: Broadway We were wondering, we were curious why there were so many nice looking theaters there And why they're not so nice looking anymore (laughs) And why it's so scary there Mm -hmm. So we're getting to the bottom of this today, once and for all Yeah, I, I, uh
0: you know, I went to high school near downtown LA, so we'd all go play in downtown after school. And the theaters, the theaters there in downtown are not theaters anymore. Or, like, there was maybe, I think the Orpheem started pick up, like, around the time I was in high school, like, 2005-ish, that time. BC. Yeah, BC. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm Christ, trying to say he's old. Christ was there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him. Yeah, so I was, I've always, you know, the architecture there is beautiful. There's a, a lot of theaters anyways on Broadway.
1: Well, we'll find out exactly how many theaters. Do you know? Yeah. Okay. Let's start with the big questions. Where did all these theaters come from? Why are they there? And why did they fail? We should change um, the podcast name to short story long. <laughs> <laughs> the original title was too much history in one hour. So the Los Angeles Downtown Theater District is the largest theater district on the National Register of Historic Places, Mm -hmm. and it was designated so in 1979. 79.
0: Yeah. Most of them were
1: shut down by that point. (laughs) It was the first theater district to make it onto the register. It's at downtown L.A. on Broadway. It starts at 3rd Street with Mm -hmm. the Million Dollar Theater, and it goes all the way down to 9th Street with the United Artists Theater. In its heyday in the 20s and 30s, the downtown area... Not just Broadway, but the surrounding streets. Yeah, there were a total of thirty-three theaters. Mm-hmm. Thirteen of these have been demolished completely to make room for the noble causes of parking lots. <laughs> uh, eight of the original ones that were off Broadway are still there, but the ones we're talking about today are the twelve that are still on Broadway. Right, and it's all in a six-block radius. Yeah,
0: and it's—I read somewhere it was the, like the largest concentration of—I uh, forget what was yeah. of, of uh, like of free world, <laughs> free world war, but we. Palaces. They call them palaces, which yeah. I really like. Movie palaces in America. Isn't
1: I, that cool? It is. I yeah. mean, they are. Palaces. They are palaces. Yeah. yeah. I, I think
0: uh, on a the website they said we're
1: all just serfs. Get <laughs> to look at the king for a day.
0: <laughs> we saw the king and I there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they only show movies with kings in them. Uh,
0: not the Lion King, though. Please go ahead. Not human kings.
1: <laughs> the twelve theaters that are on Broadway. There's the Million Dollar Theater. This is going from north to south, I think, Uh this list I have. The Million Dollar Theater, the Roxy, the Cameo, the Arcade, the Los Angeles, the Palace, the State, the Globe, the Tower, the Rialto, the Orpheum, and the United Artists. So most of these are no longer used for what they were supposed (laughs) to be used for. A lot of them became churches Uh and otherwise, which we'll get into. A lot of the architecture of these places has been mostly unchanged, though, from the 20s and 30s when they were built. Because since they were being used, not being used for so long, nobody figured like they didn't yeah, quite bother. No, yeah, no
0: one's ever going to come to downtown. There's never downtown yeah. LA is never going to have a resurgence. No, ever. <laughs> never.
1: So each of these theaters were designed in different architectural styles. So it adds a really fun eclecticism to mm-hmm. the street. The critics at the time said that all the different styles were a pitiful degradation of art and that it was the prostitution of architecture. Which is the old LA, profession. It's what LA does. Best. <laughs> so, with so many really beautiful theaters in such a concentrated area, I, what could possibly have gone so horribly wrong for all of them to fail? Most of the story is a continuing theme of the city's population moving and their theaters and ways of consuming entertainment following them. So, we'll start at the beginning, fade in. The theater scene in LA started in 1870. By an undertaker turned showman named William Abbott, wow. and he's the man that opened up the city's first permanent theater in the Pueblo area. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just touching the Pico House. In case you were trying to find it forever, like I was, <laughs> he named the theater after his wife, Merced. Oh, okay, so it's the Merced Theater, oh. which I don't remember anything of the other podcast, but I think that was the place you said where they held the conference that established the founding of the Los Angeles Public Library. It's very possible. There were like two buildings at the time.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. other one was
1: filled. <laughs> There's a few times where the public library history intersects with this. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I'd like to hear them. Yeah. So listen to both podcasts at the same time. <laughs> if you play the Los Angeles Public Library podcast backwards while you listen to this one, they link up.
0: Uh, God gave you two
1: ears. <laughs> so the Merced Theater for a while was where all the shows in the city used to be. In the 1880s, the development and population of the city started to move south from the Pueblo area and the commercial center of LA focused onto the area that's around what is now known as like Spring and First. Okay. That led to a creation of a theater district along what is now Main Street because it was following the population migration, and it was accommodating their entertainment needs. Then in the late 1880s, City Hall was moved into this area, but not Mm -hmm. the current City Hall. That's right. You Mm keen-eared listeners. The city wanted to move the commercial district away and keep this area more of just an administrative district, which it still is today. So they figured two streets over was far (laughs) enough, and everything was moved over to Broadway. So then in 1903, the Mason Opera House broke the mold and opened up on Broadway rather than on Main, where all the other ones are. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, department stores started opening up on Broadway. The first one that I read was opening on 3rd Street, but it wasn't until 1905 that the area was solidified as the new commercial district with the opening of the Hamburger Department Store, which was also a temporary home for the Los Angeles Public Library and the birthplace of hamburgers. That's right. Probably the same joke. <laughs> and that was on Broadway and 8th. They had a really ornate exterior, and they had the largest aisles in the United States, What's whichever that, that means. Uh, Does that exactly. mean there's nothing
0: in the middle, it's just walls? Yeah, it was, the whole aisle. store was
1: one big aisle <laughs> with an open space in the middle. So on its first day of business, 35,000 people showed up to ride the escalator. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we... Can we take a minute to pretend to be those people on the escalator for the first time? <laughs>
1: They're like stairs, but they move, but I don't. Call me when they get an elevator. <laughs> it's witchcraft. <laughs> so the reason the escalator was exciting, though, was because it was the only one west of St. Louis. Jesus That's right. still not exciting, though. I'm sorry. I, uh, yeah. Sorry, 1905. <laughs> so soon after, with other stores coming in as well, Broadway became the retail capital of the U.S.
0: That's so, cool.
1: yeah. Really? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. It doesn't seem right. It's not. (laughs) So around this time, following the crowds, that's when vaudeville Mm -hmm. theaters started to Mm -hmm. pop up around on Broadway, and then around 1910 came the Nickelodeons. And then 1911
0: came, the Nick Jr. It's okay, but not as funny.
1: (laughs) So various theaters started opening up on Broadway. But then in 1918, Sid Grauman took the game to the next level. And he opened up what is now known as the Million Dollar Theater, Uh which was L.A.'s first grand movie palace. And it officially made Broadway L.A.'s third theater theater district. (laughs) Now new ornate theaters start opening up. And they were all competing with each other to see who could be the best theater in town. That led to the like architecture wars, where everyone right. tried to be more and more flamboyant and more unique than the last one. It was the war that that benefited everybody because yeah. they are really nice looking. They are they nice. Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It benefited everybody, but apparently critics. Yep. <laughs> Everybody's a uh, architect. <laughs> Every- <laughs> uh, a side note on the architecture of the buildings that yes. I have, please. Uh, most of the ornamentation and flair. Mm-hmm. is situated on the tops of the buildings. And that was meant to impress the people in the other buildings across the street that yeah. were looking at them from the same level, mm-hmm. not for the riffraff on the street <laughs> level, because you can't even fully see it from up there. So yeah. they are just trying to impress people that were as rich as them. And this was a tradition of the early 20th century, which was later rejected as a style. So the only other place with such details left on the building tops in the country is New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Coast to coast. Yeah. So decorating these places so beautifully, it was, it was a sign of also of the new respectability that film as an art form was starting to earn mm-hmm. for itself. Movie going was a special experience. So yeah. Seeing the building, that was really nice. It and made being it, there
0: as you're watching yeah. the movie.
1: And there wasn't gum on all over the screen. They didn't have gum back then. No. Well, they had that? gum, but it was made out of bosses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they just had chewing tobacco for the kids. <laughs>
1: flavored chewing (laughs) to they had bubblegum flavored chewing tobacco, but they didn't have bubblegum. No one knew what it meant. So more and more theaters were being built and by nineteen thirty one, our Broadway in LA was the West Coast equivalent of New York's Great White Way, which was their Broadway. Only they focused on live theater, we focused on movies. Mm -hmm. And it had, like you said, the highest concentration of movie palaces in the world with a combined seating on any night between all these theaters of 15,000. And then this same year, 1931, it was when New York broke all the records with the Empire State Building going up, mm-hmm. but we broke the records going sideways, ah. which sums up perfectly the key difference between how L.A. and New York <laughs> they are. We're the fat city, and they're, they're tall and lanky.
0: We have more
1: The city of Los Angeles decided it didn't have to stay in the downtown central area like mm-hmm. New York did, because we weren't constrained by the physical borders of water yeah. that New York has. So, I mean, if we did, if the L.A. River was something yeah. to be reckoned with. We would be trapped would between be... the Pacific and the river. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then the yeah. curse of the Griffith Park would keep us, you know, bordered in. I know. We'd
1: never be able to sleep. Nope. And after Jaws came out... Oh, my God. can the go, 70s? Can't go anywhere. <laughs> Jaws came out in the 1870s. <laughs> Come
0: watch this boy beaten by a shot.
1: <laughs> What's a boy? <laughs> but the theaters didn't just do movies. They, they had, you know, they were still theaters, and they had a stage. Mm-hmm. So many of them, which I know you're going to talk about, did vaudeville shows yeah. and even music shows, and they had performers like the Marx Brothers, yes. Charlie Chaplin, Houdini, Bing Crosby, W.C. Fields, Ooh. and Duke Ellington. All on the same show he smelling it more like it so now in the history we're in the heyday and this area was booming mm-hmm. people would come to the theater district from all over the city to go do their shopping at the department stores and then they'd go see a movie afterwards and to make things even better the yellow streetcar okay. it ran right down Broadway which made getting there extremely convenient mm-hmm. and then even better. Better, Broadway (laughs) at that time was the western end of Route 66. And that lasted until 1936. So a lot of tourists from all over the country were led straight into the trap (laughs) of Broadway in its prime. Right. So things seemed to be going really great. So now why, (laughs) why, God, (laughs) did this happen?
0: I just have a small piece here about it slowly shifting to a new form and things starting to stretch out. Like you mentioned earlier... Uh, the way LA works we started to spread everything and you can't you can't you can't condensed LA in like a little area they're just mm-hmm. not like that. New York is a haiku
1: and we're a Chaucer.
0: <laughs> I just have uh, in capital letters um, rats.
1: In all senses. In all senses. It was the great uh, the great rat invasion of the 40s. They had finks and they had rats. <laughs> some were even rat finks
0: and then don't forget the stool pigeons as well it
1: wasn't a quick it it wasn't like it wasn't just a rat like you know we like to joke on this (laughs) but a giant rat come on listeners a giant rat didn't come in and close all the theaters it was ten thousand small rats (laughs) it wasn't just immediate event overnight that made all the theaters start to leave downtown it was a really slow painful decades-long process That was contributed to by many different things. So to start, as we said, the city was continuing to grow. And just how the Broadway district ended up on Broadway because the city was expanding south from the Pueblo area, the city began to move west from there. And in 1910, L.A. absorbed the city of Hollywood. In 1922, Mm -hmm. seeing this shift happening, Sid Grauman opened up another theater in Hollywood, which was the Egyptian Theater. Then Hollywood started to become this mega entertainment cluster around this time. And capitalizing even further, Grauman opened the Chinese Theater in 1927. So the guy who started Broadway actually became the guy that put the bullet in its head. <laughs> that didn't kill it for another like, 80 years. Did you know that the um,
0: the guys dressed like Shrek and Captain America were actually there before the theater, though? Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that.
1: They came over from Broadway also. <laughs> as long as there's been Superman, there's been a guy standing on Hollywood Boulevard dressed as him.
0: It was called Hollywood Land Boulevard at the
1: time. <laughs> and he was Superfellow. But I, I was wondering... Why Hollywood? Of like of all the places, yeah. why Hollywood? I thought it was because all the studios were there, yeah. but that doesn't really make sense because a lot of them were in the Valley, like in Burbank, and those areas didn't become what Hollywood was at yeah. that time. Th- this was because of a man named C. E. Toberman, okay, which I'd never heard of before. Hear I'm either. sure he'll come up in the future, but he was the grand designer behind Hollywood, and he consciously wanted to like make Hollywood a brand and branded as the entertainment capital of the world. Did it work? I don't know.
0: (laughs) I bought a mug the other day that
1: said, I I heart Hollywood. I think it worked. (laughs) You did it again, Toberman. (laughs) (laughs) Toberman! (laughs) He courted Grauman, so that was where he decided to open his new theaters. Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, in 1936... The end of Route 66 was changed from Broadway to Santa Monica, which reflected the changing focus of the city as a whole. We weren't cared about downtown.
0: That's what I thought the uh, moves west meant was everyone was going to Santa Monica yeah, because everything exactly. was exactly you know you could it was couch. all fun,
1: fun, fun. Yeah, yeah,
0: until Daddy takes it deeper away.
1: That was changing the, the focus of the whole city. It was yeah. all about sunshine and We're- soda pop.
0: They were, they were changing the image of uh, Southern California because they wanted it to reflect the weather because yeah. they were moving everybody yeah. west. Yeah, it
1: was our selling point. But really, the main reason for the downfall was that after World War II, people just started moving into the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the suburbs were new. And the city had been expanding steadily westward into more open, undeveloped areas and into the valley as well. So plain and simple, the population left downtown, so the theater owners gave up on the Broadway theaters because yeah. there was no point. Yeah, but... I mean, it's not Hollywood didn't live happily forever after. It didn't even start off happily. <laughs> no, it was a miserable situation the whole time because as people who live here know and as people who come to visit bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, they find out very quickly that Hollywood really is not a nice place yeah. because the city continued expanding to the west. So in the 1960s, Hollywood lost the entertainment cachet and the theater started moving to Westwood. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought the western parts of the city, like Santa Monica and all that, are still really nice places yeah. compared to Hollywood and downtown because the city couldn't expand any further west <laughs> and abandon anymore. Yeah. If there was like if there were 2 more miles Santa Monica would be garbage yeah. at this point. So with the population now in the suburbs, offices and restaurants and retailers followed them and that led to the creation of shopping malls, which was the communal gathering places of the new suburbs. So as usual, the entertainment followed the population. And this led to the creation of multiplexes, which is where people began to see their movies. So then rather than going all the way into the city, to one of the grand theaters that only showed one movie at a time, they just go, we can see whatever we want, and we can buy junior mints, Mm -hmm.
0: which were called mints at the time.
1: That's another reason why the theater district failed, because they didn't sell junior mints. Yeah, that's what it was, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, they didn't get the Seinfeld reference, and they just got left behind in the dust.
1: They knew yada, yada, yada. (laughs) I have another side note. All this led me to wondering, with all the ornate theaters downtown and in the Hollywood area, Mm -hmm. what was the Warner Grand Theater doing in San Pedro? Hey, you're right. Because it's so so weird that it would be all the way there. It's just as nice as all the other ones, but it's in the middle of... Just Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah, yeah. I found out that to us, like the Warner Grand Theater is really unique and special. But it turns out that in this period of time, it was just a typical neighborhood movie theater. The Warner Brothers also built similar theaters in Beverly Hills and in Huntington Park. And Mm -hmm. then other companies like Fox West Coast, which we're going to hear about later also. Yeah. They were building a lot of theaters in all the remote suburban pockets of L.A. Yeah. So there were all these theater palaces that could hold about 1,500 also. They had them in Fairfax and La Brea and Westlake and everywhere. So every neighborhood had its own ornate movie palace. But then by the 30s, more and more theaters like these were being built, but they were becoming less and less ornate and less unique. Mm-hmm. So that's why.
0: Okay. Okay. That's
1: a good answer. That's an answer. That's
0: an answer, all right. <laughs> yeah, because that, that that is a really nice theater. It's not. And, and speaking of that, it's not as nice as the downtown theaters. But it, it seems like yeah. a like a it's like a also cool neighborhood. more haunted. It's all it's certainly theaters. more haunted than most theaters.
1: It just seems weird that it's so cut off there. But what we're missing is that the like body that was <laughs> connecting it to the rest of all the theaters has That's just true. been demolished That's by right.
0: now. And the 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 whole way, like I think Huntington Park all the way maybe to Long Beach had a, like a, that whole art deco thing going on probably I was probably later though but they had a lot of things that were trying to live up to yeah. what was happening downtown
1: and boy did it work <laughs> <laughs> so downtown was still a first run film destination yeah. into the 50s but by the 70s and 80s, the only things that were keeping the theaters—the ones that were that were still there alive—were action movies and black exploitation movies. Mm-hmm. But then, most importantly, Mexican films and variety shows. Right on. So then, after World War II, when the rich people started to leave downtown and the theaters followed them, the department stores still stayed, and then they started catering to the growing Spanish-speaking immigrant and working-class population that was moving into the area. Uh-huh. So then by the 70s and 80s, Broadway became the shopping and theater destination for Spanish-speaking families. All these Spanish-speaking shoppers and moviegoers, that's what saved all these theaters from complete ruin because I mean if they weren't showing those things they they had be- nothing. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. had nothing. Yeah. and the shopping on Broadway it became a destination itself by selling you know really cheap clothes. That drew a lot of shoppers. And so much so that in the 90s, some of these stores had rents that were even higher than some of the stores in Beverly Hills. (laughs) That didn't last either. Um, The stores started to fail as other shopping districts geared towards Spanish-speaking families started popping up all over the city. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, something huge came up that started to eat away even further at these dying theaters. Rats. One giant rat. (laughs) His name was Milo. (laughs) The thing that it was was home video. Oh, yeah, of course. Because then the theaters by this point, they weren't even showing, you know, they weren't showing the most current movies. Mm -hmm. So they started drawing fewer and fewer crowds when people could see the same movies that they were showing in theaters in their own homes. Right. Why go out? When it hits, what, late 80s and early 90s, you have, like... I mean, I
0: always bring it up, but like the earthquakes and the riots, like being like in downtown and in an earthquake, like nobody, like <laughs> it, downtown, like it's a sketchy place, especially in the nineties, it became like a horrible place to be. Yeah. I hear a lot of stories from the elders, the elders about downtown and we're not supposed to speak. In <laughs> the only reason my family even went to downtown was uh, probably the library and that, for the
1: black exploitation films. They loved Foxy Brown. So now we're at the lowest point of the theater's district's <laughs> history. So now we're going to go into a few specific theaters to show, like, case studies okay. of what exactly happened. I'm going to do the Million Dollar Theater. Oh,
0: I went there. It's very nice.
1: Yeah. it is. I have. I wish I had gone in there, but...
0: I think UCLA has that film thing there where they'll yeah. play, like, play a movie once a month, and then we saw the Sam Fuller double feature there. Mm. It was really nice in there. The Million Dollar
1: Theater, well... It wasn't called that yet. It was Sid Grauman's first theater in LA. That's had a horrible it.
0: name for it. For a theater. <laughs>
1: it's not much better, the real original name of it. So it opened February 1st, 1918, with the premiere of The Silent Man. Okay. And in attendance were the likes of Charlie Chaplin, Hal Roach, Cecil B. DeMille, and Lillian Gish. Ooh. It was originally called Grauman's Theater.
0: Boy, yeah. he really did. It was it really edgy at
1: <laughs> that time. It was called that until 1922, when it was renamed to reflect how much it costs to construct a billion (laughs) (laughs) dollars.
0: The price of an average ticket there.
1: (laughs) It's located on Broadway and 3rd, and the building, which was the Laughlin Block, and this is the third library connection of the night, that also was a temporary home of the library. On Laughlin Block? Laughlin Block, yeah. I didn't know that. Maybe I should listen to the podcast. Maybe
0: I should listen to the podcast. That's again. when you
1: left in the middle of the podcast. I
0: thought you said laughing.
1: The Laughlin block was owned by Homer Laughlin. Okay. Who also owned the Grand Central Market. Ugh, I mean, oh. That's where the giant rap, <laughs> rap now <laughs> slumbers under a pile of pupsas. There's twelve stories of offices above the theater, Mm -hmm. and the one on the top floor belonged to William Mulholland. Is that right? Who's the guy that ran the Metropolitan Water District, the Metropolitan Water (laughs) District, the Water District, which was the precursor to the DWP? Mm -hmm. And he's the guy that was the inspiration for the movie Chinatown. Yeah. So that's where all of LA's water wars happened when everyone was on the street with super soakers. (laughs) So many lives, so much death. Some wounds never (laughs) dry. The theater itself was the first theater palace built specifically for movies. And it had an orchestration pit that extended halfway up the stage to show off the musicians that were accompanying the movies. But that only lasted until 1922 when the pit caught on fire oh, <laughs> during a show. not <laughs> funny? <laughs> it's funny now. So then it got rebuilt in a normal way. So we can't see those disgusting musicians oh, playing. The projection room also had doors made of steel and asbestos ah. to prevent fires and keep Everyone there, nice and safe and healthy. It can seat 2,345 people in there. And the theater had a deal to show the Paramount slash Famous Players Lasky movies. But Sid Grauman, being the showman that he was, Mm -hmm. it became known for its lavish premieres of movies and the shows that would be put on before the movie started. Grauman started doing this sort of thing just a year after the theater opened. He called them prologues that would be before the films. Mm -hmm. And they were just like various live shows and events. They even had like big fashion shows that would go on before a movie, which sounds really fun. Doesn't it? That's the only time I would watch a fashion show. (laughs) If they were showing the Brave Little Toaster afterwards. (laughs) These shows lasted until the late 20s when talkies came along and they didn't, you know, yeah. that was enough. That wound people enough. Yeah. Grauman perfected the art of his prologues at the Chinese theater when he started having movie stars put their hands and feet in cement out front of the theater before the premieres. So that's how that started.
0: Have you seen Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell when they did um, *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes when they did it? No. It's, it's pornographic. <laughs> Sorry. I just want every time. Cement
1: so- <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so like, like we talked about before, Grauman sold his stake in the Million Dollar Theater. He, would, he was just hawking steaks everywhere. <laughs> he would have prologues before the show, then the movie, and then afterwards you would have to buy a seasoned <laughs> steak from it. Steaks for the ball. Get your official Grauman steak. <laughs> With Marilyn Monroe's handprint in it. Don't ask how she did it. The other downtown theaters that he had steaks in were also the Rialto and the Metropolitan. So he got out of it and he left for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, this theater changed hands a few times, including being owned by Fox West Coast. But the government wasn't happy about this because of all the scrutiny that movie studios were getting for owning theaters at this time. Led to them having to sell it off as part of the antitrust acts that they imposed. But then in 1935, it was bought by the Harry Popkins Circle Theaters Company, who turned it into a place that put on stage shows. And they showed uh, also second-run films. So in the 40s, it started to focus more housing jazz and big band, like uh, Lionel Hampton was there, Billie Ooh. Holiday, Dizzy Gillespie. Ooh. And then in 1945, it got leased by Metropolitan Theaters, who at this time, they were doing vaudeville shows at the Orpheum, which you're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, they decided to bring vaudeville to the million dollar and then do the first-run movies at the Orpheum instead. Right. And then in the 50s, the theater got subleased to Frank Foos. He started showing the Spanish language films, and he was putting on Mexican vaudeville shows. Okay. But then Fuji died in 69, so his son, who just died last year, took over, and he continued on with the Spanish language tradition. Mm-hmm. So the Spanish stuff, that lasted until 1993 <laughs> when the theater closed and became the Universal Church. And then the church left in 1998, and then back comes the Spanish language All movies. Right. But that only lasted a year, and then they <laughs> closed again and became another church. And then eventually that church closed. And in 2005, the theater got a million-dollar makeover, which is why they now call it the Million Dollar Makeover Theater. (laughs) And then in February 2008, it reopened for concerts and to occasionally show old movies. Right like we were saying. It's also, you can see it in the background of Blade Runner a lot. Oh, really? Yeah, because the Bradbury Building's right across the street. Oh, that's right. So what theater are you going to do? I'm going to
0: talk about the Orpheum-Vaudeville circuit. I'm going to concentrate more on vaudeville than the movies, just because I was a little bit more interested in it. The Orpheum that I read a lot about turned out to not be the Orpheum that's there now. It's actually what is uh, The Palace. I believe it's not even on Broadway. It's on Spring. The Orpheum, the one that's there now, is on 842 South Broadway. It's the second to last one up there it's still active it's probably the most prosperous of them yeah yeah they have like real shows yeah they have real real people go (laughs) there yeah you could tell it's the most prosperous because they they film the best movies there (laughs) the orpheum was a whole series it was the vaudeville circuit this one in on broadway was the last one of the circuit the other three was there was one on main street it was the grand opera house it was built in 1894 it was also at some point called the child's opera house and that later became the Lyceum theater there was another one on two twenty-seven South Spring Street, called the Los Angeles Theater, which I think moved eventually to yeah, that's yeah. on Broadway. I think like they switched the Lyceum back and forth. Like they sort of switched names. Apparently, there's six thirty South Broadway, which they say is now the Palace. That's the Orphan that we're go- I'm going to be talking about. Okay, was the last of the Orphan theaters, is most successful, and it's probably the most successful of all the theaters on Broadway to this day. Planning began in 1923, and they opened it on February 15th, 1926, the 88th birthday of the Orpheum. is about to happen in a couple days. Mm-hmm. Interesting. They're not going to do anything, though.
1: He doesn't want to call attention to himself.
0: <laughs> we don't talk age around here. <laughs> the whole vaudeville circuit was started by a guy named Gustav Walter. It was a chain, and it was started up north in San Francisco, and then he brought it down here. It was mm-hmm. a German...
1: Yeah, I feel like the name Orpheum, I feel like every city every has, has city an Orpheum, orpheum theater. Yeah.
0: Apparently, it goes from... I mean, he started in San Francisco, he came down to L.A., and then he slowly moved east, but I don't think he ever made it to, like, New York. I think the farthest he went was, like, Memphis. There is one in Memphis that I was He reading. died somewhere. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in in there. So I was reading a lot about a theater that ended up being in Memphis, and I was really mad because it was juicy. Fires. People fired left and right. Oh, God. I was, that in, Memphis was fired. in Memphis. I know. It's a really big theater. Just like their barbecue. Mm, I don't get it. The architect for this was a guy named uh, G. Albert Langsberg. He designed this. He designed the Wiltern on Wilshire and Western. Mm-hmm. He designed the Al Capitan Theater. Cool. He designed the Shrine. They're all beautiful theater. Oh, the Shrine's interior, but he, they're all really beautiful theaters. <laughs> not no, not doing anything for me. What's the Shrine? What's the, <laughs> the, the Shrine movie? to what? <laughs> I don't know if you've been in the Shrine recently. I we went for like they have a comic convention there like every month, and I went like maybe two years ago. It's pretty. It's Which one is the shrine? The shrine is, is the near US USC. Yeah, near the New one York. that
1: looks like a temple.
0: Yeah, it looks like a temple. The it's one called the shrine. shrine. It's a shrine that looks like a temple, but inside it looks like Gotham City. <laughs> it's, it looks dank. <laughs> the Orpheum has six floors, six floors of dressing rooms, a film projector, like they say, the, a world class sound system. It has one of the last surviving Mighty Wurlitzer theater mm-hmm. organs there, and it's in prime shape. Wow. It was a 235 special when it started, and they updated it to a 240, style 240. Uh, I don't know what that means. Only 24 organs of this style were built. And this is one of the last 15 that is still playable mm. right here in downtown LA. Wow. Yeah, even Can though... anyone play it? Yeah. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you let me know what happens. <laughs> 14 left. <laughs> is someone playing chopsticks on the organ?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> There's dynamite on that key.
0: The organ has pretty much remained there since the theater opened in 1926. The only time it was removed was when a restoration crew took over in the 70s, and they wanted to uh, revamp it, and they put it back in there. And uh, there's a new composer named Cameron Carpenter, and I hear he's very good according to the website where I read all of this.
1: (laughs) Cameroncarpenter.com.
0: I want to talk about the guy who started the Orpheum Circuit. He was a guy. A German uh, immigrant, he came from uh, New York. He started in New York. He was known as one of the most energetic and successful amusement caterers in the country. They keep calling it amusement caterer, which I think is a really cool term. He was very careful in his business. He was very courageous. He'd take a lot of dares. He didn't like lose a lot of money. He he like he didn't <laughs> he lose a lot of money. Too much money. He knew what was going to hit. Like he had like this foresight about what entertainment was going to hit. He only lost money. He started something called the Vienna Gardens. And uh, he kept It'd hiring these ex- expensive European acts, ex, and it didn't turn out, so he lost a lot of money. He had to sell it for a while, and then he ended up reclaiming it. And he did it with the help of a guy named Morse Mayerfield Jr., a very shrewd businessman who was not <laughs> enthusiastic about entertainment at all. He was all business, and he shows up in the story later on. Once he reclaimed the Orpheme circuit, he did very well with it. He came down to LA, he opened four theaters, and they all pretty much did very well. For as long as Vaudeville lasted, the theaters did really well. He died of an appendicitis. Sound familiar? Mm, that could have been you. It could have been. Uh, and then ownership went over to a um, Mayerfield and a guy named Martin Beck, who both will come back later. Los Angeles, Vaudeville, gets very little respect in comparison to like East Coast acts because they were pretty much, like you said, there were a lot of live performances and over here mm-hmm. was a lot of movies and stuff. But it, uh, we had our own thing, I suppose. I was reading about... That, that was a lot different because our city was different and everything was spreading out. Movies were getting involved in everything. Between 1910 and 20, 1926, the rise of popularity of vaudeville can be measured by the boom of theaters. In 1906 to 1907, there were 13, including the Orpheum, the, the unique, the novelty, and the star, which all closed really quickly. By 1914, apparently there was they said there was 71 listed in the entire city of L.A., like spread throughout. Mm-hmm. 20% of those were what they call small-time theaters, meant specifically for small vaudeville acts and they were run by the troops like the not the military oh. the vaudeville troops i
1: stood up and saluted when you said that. <laughs>
0: and they were managed by their own people which i thought was really interesting because they were a lot of remote vaudeville acts that were over here in la like they were run they were managed by a giant corp, like a giant group in new york they would do the hard travel to the other mm-hmm. side of the coast and then they would work they'd have like little remote vaudeville groups here and then the manager of whoever brought them out would take care of like, you know, who they booked, the payroll, the personnel. So they, they were all, they were these like extensions that I I, don't know, I just kind of thought that was interesting to read about. LA was a favorite city because it was uh, a new city. So they, they kind of like had a lot to work with sort of a new audience that wasn't used to sort of stuff. So they had like they all the old jokes in New York were like doing yeah. better here. <laughs> it did really well because LA hadn't become like the, the film center of the world yet. Mm-hmm. So they were doing really well. And LA offered because it was a new city. They offered entertainers like reasonable housing costs. You know, audiences were really eager to see live performances because it wasn't a big thing. And then let's not forget the weather. Beautiful.
1: Let me take off my sunglasses and talk <laughs> about the weather a little
0: bit. I can't hear you through my board shorts. <laughs> <laughs> So during the heyday of Vaudeville, there was really four theaters that really uh, were getting popular. The Pantages, owned by uh-huh. Alexander Pantages, was the smallest theater. And they were notorious for not providing adequate commodities for traveling acts. Define commodities. Are we talking toilets here? Mm-hmm. Possibly toilets. Rooms mm. and board and stuff like that. In comparison to everything I say about the Orvium, just think the opposite when you think the Pantages. Oh, there we go. I already did. Oh, boy. The Pantages was just a the small theater. Uh, the Hippodrome, my favorite name of the theaters. The Kloon, and then there's the Orpheum. The Orpheum we're speaking of right now is the one that eventually becomes the palace.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: It was just the biggest, so I feel so, like if I'm talking about vaudeville, I'm talking about, um, you know, they call it the Orpheum at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: It was the king of the theaters. That's all. I want to end on it. The Orpheum was the king of the theaters. It was the largest. It offered the best commodities to entertainers. And it also offered to them the most receptive audience, like people who came to the Orpheum uh, really wanted to see. They were they were expecting the best kind of shows, and then they also... They didn't
1: just come here to get uh, cooking blouses and then stumble into a movie theater. Exactly, the
0: right and they just wanted to see a pie in the face. Yeah. They it wasn't those, it wasn't <laughs> they those were, rubes. They were highbrow. <laughs> Each theater operated differently, and the Orpheum did everything on a grand scale. It could house like 1,200 patrons. Uh, it offered, like, a live orchestra with the, the Willitzer, which was really... It had, like, the greatest sound system, apparently, of all the theaters. Mm-hmm. And the you know, it had, like, the biggest stage. It was 40 by 68 by 31, which means something in measurements, I suppose. They offered two shows a day. Most of them offered two shows a day, but they had, like, a, the best time slots. Like, 2.15, the matinee, and then an 8.15 mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. The, the, mid, the, the afternoon show. The midnight show, the show at 8.15. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the evening show, excuse me, the evening uh, show at 8.15. That's the original Tonight Show. Yeah, remember? Most bills... Pretty much worked out like this. There would be a dumb act, quotation marks, Mm -hmm. which is usually like an animal circus or something. Something for the dumb kids, you know? They just (laughs) love that stuff. There was a musical number that was usually like a a solo performance. And then the comedy team would come out and do like a sketch for everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, There'd be a a playlet, which is a little baby play. It's a play starring babies? Yeah. And after the playlet, they had their first headliner. They'd have an intermission, which usually was either like a photo play or the orchestra would play a piece you know just um, to keep everybody's mind moving along they'd have the second headliner and then they have the final act which i thought the final act would be something really grand maybe mm-hmm. it'd be a dumb show in quotations or here's something very interesting something called a flash act which was all the performances all on the same, on the stage <laughs> at the same time what? i know isn't that cool
1: it's like the end of a mel brooks movie <laughs>
0: hitlers there in the background too <laughs>
1: springtime
0: I think a flashback sounds so cool that
1: does sound that yeah. sounds a little I would. Th- I think I'd be a little frightened when yeah. the like oh. the tiger jumping through the hoop came out at the same time as the the juggler the one armed man juggling plates well we'll talk about when they when the rebuilding they're doing but they should restart vaudeville if they're gonna restart all this they should restart vaudeville
0: hipsters would love that oh my God. to get back on topic the orphan was mm-hmm. renowned for treating their performance very well and this is so thanks for the hero of this story is a guy named Clarence Drown who was the manager of the Orpheum at the time. The Orpheum had um, fifteen dressing rooms, with two off 15 stage. Fifteen dressing rooms. Fifteen dressing rooms, because they knew how to take care of their performers. Yeah. They had two showers. Uh, at, in each <laughs> Maybe they didn't know how to take care of <laughs> their performers. Two <laughs> showers in each dressing room. Oh, wow! And a large washing room for animal acts. Uh, other theaters paid all their talent on backstage after the show. <laughs> <laughs> Questions? How many makeup mirrors did the animal dressing rooms have? <laughs> Just one big one that the chimps, the monkeys, and the tigers all had to share. And the little <laughs> penguin would have to sit under the, the elephant legs. And the
1: hippo couldn't even put his lipstick on properly.
0: thought <laughs> those <was> so scary. <laughs> So many dead animals. <laughs> the other theaters would pay the talent like backstage after the show, but the Orpheum was very professional. They dished out checks once a week on Saturdays from a manager's office, mm. like real people should be yeah. treated. Yeah, that was a place where everyone wanted to perform, and, and that's where everyone wanted to go see like a really great performance, like I mentioned. So it was really nice to have a place like the Orpheum that, that housed that kind of environment. It was very performer-friendly.
1: So the Orpheum that is still there today is this... That's this place, No, this right? is,
0: right now, this is the palace, but it was called the oh. Orpheum at the time. Okay. To get back to Clarence Drown, mm-hmm. he managed the theater from 1902 to 1918, which is a good stretch. This is from somebody who worked for Clarence Drown. This comes from an article that, like, saved my life during this. It's called Vaudeville in Los Angeles, 1910 to 1926. Theaters, Management, and the Orpheum by Stan Singer. A really good article about Vaudeville at the time. And this is a quote about Clarence Drown that I liked a lot. Clarence Drown would tell all the stagehands. Uh, explicitly about his concern for performers so this is what he would tell stagehands they arrive here monday from san francisco after a long tiresome journey being temperamental they naturally pack a grouch now it is our play to foster this grouch we must show them that they are welcome and i want you to get them everything they ask for if they have a grievance do all in your power to remedy it under no circumstance argue or irritate them in any way we must get the best work out of them Can you believe that? So
1: he treated his performers well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) He treated the performers well. That's why everyone wanted to go to the Orphan, because Claire just ran Mm -hmm. and worked there. He pampered all these people. His practices were so revered that W.C. Fields wrote a variety article on them called A Regular House. And he pretty much just kisses his ass all over And he says (laughs) some of the nicest things about him. I can't
1: imagine W.C. Fields being nice to anybody.
0: I think it was part of a joke. It's like an Annie Kaufman thing. (laughs) Annie Kaufman? Annie Kaufman. It's a split between Annie Hall and Andy Kaufman. <laughs> He's just talking about how nice the Orphan is, how qualified uh, Drown is, and everything. I thought all W.C. Fields knew about Drowning was in liquor, but whatever. I'm not going to read like W.C. Fields because I don't have that much talent. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. A dozen sets of furniture are stocked away in a storeroom. You may call for anything from horsehair to a gold set valued at $800. and get it. All the draperies used on stage are the kind one would find in a millionaire's home. I never have been inside the habitat of a modern Croesus, but I have read the books. So basically, he's just kissing everyone's ass right there. And he knew how to hold a great performance, like top to bottom. He encouraged the conductor of the house, whose name was A.F. Frankenstein, who also wrote the music for the state song, I Love California. His name's A.F. Frankenstein.
1: A.F. Frankenstein? Yeah,
0: his name's A.F. Frankenstein. He's the house conductor of the Orpheum. Oh my god. His name is Frankenstein. There's some really funny names in all this. Clarence Drown is a really funny name. It to is me.
1: funny that Frankenstein works with Drown. Yeah. I <laughs>
0: oh, I absolutely
1: agree with you.
0: He instructed uh, Frankenstein to not play the hits.
1: <laughs> now you're just reading the book. Frankenstein, don't you play the hits. Arr! <laughs> Frankenstein want to play Swanee. <laughs> Our apologies to the Frankenstein family. <laughs> They've been through a lot
0: already. He instructed him not to play the hits because he wanted to discourage audience members from singing along and becoming too familiar in the audience with uh, vocalizing their. Mm. He didn't want them to get too comfortable. Yeah. Like Married With Children, when every time uh, Kelly yeah. came out, people were like, What?
1: Yeah, or and every time Al would stick his hand in his pants and everyone would go. <laughs> <"Oo-o-o."> <laughs>
0: <laughs> only you would at home
1: everyone did that right? <laughs> sitting between your parents everyone knows what i'm talking about
0: <laughs> look mom like me
1: <laughs> look mom i'm out
0: <laughs> and i hate women he also uh wouldn't let in late patrons while Anak was in performance i like that yeah i like that a lot so if you came late and there was something going on he'd he'd keep you outside or he'd instruct the ushers to keep he you personally outside personally would rip mr. up your ticket mr drown we need you down here again <laughs> The lucky loser here. And he also doubled the number of ushers to add speed to efficiency for a lot of the big shows, which I think was really great. The first show at the Orpheum was as follows. The Orpheum Orchestra conducted the Tannhauser March and the Jubal Overture. Then Hal Ford, an English comedian and impersonator, took the stage, followed by a melodrama sketch titled The Little Stranger. <laughs> After that, Henry Clive, a think magician, came on. After Henry Clive, a female musician. What music... is a think magician? I was looking that up. I don't really know. I think it's like a, not like oh, a hit, uh, hypnotist, uh, but like uh, one of those like a read your mind thing. Tele, 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 telepath. A tele, yeah, a telepath. A telegram. A telegram. Oh, yeah, it's a telegram. It's we'll a on. telegram, yeah. After that, a music group called the Boston Fadettes came on. And then after the Fadettes, Isabel D. The, the mighty, um... mighty
1: Boston Fadettes. Yeah, the mighty,
0: mighty. <laughs> After that, Isabel de Armand was a uh, dance and talk act. I don't know what talk is in the quotations. And then something called a legitimate hold up was a drama.
1: A legitimate hold up. Huh? A
0: legitimate hold up, which I Maybe think they I
1: legitimately got robbed on <laughs> opening night.
0: First three rows, stand up. And then there's a comedy duo of Ed Wynne and P. O'Malley, and they performed something called Daffodils, and then ended with Bowers, Walters, and Crocker was another comedy act. And then they closed with was it something called the daylight pictures, which, which was like short documentary travel logs. But I managed to just pictures of daylight. Mm-hmm. So that first show, I think this really interested all the patrons and friends were invited backstage to like see the theater equipment and meet everybody. Like they met uh, Landsberg, the architect.
1: Everybody was invited backstage.
0: I think it says pa- I read patrons were invited to come backstage and check out everything like behind behind mm-hmm. the scenes, which I thought was really cool. They met uh, they you know. Um, of Frankenstein was there the conductor everyone <laughs> but he was in chains though he does not like flash photography <laughs> they wanted to get him to sing um, if you're putting, putting on, you on, the rinse. Put it on the roots putting on the roots thank you I only know it by starting the first couple lyrics Brown was back there meeting everybody uh, the archetype Landsberg was back there and then, about like 1926, 1927, the, uh, the Orpheum circuit was purchased by the Keith Albee Corporation Studio. And the merger led to the opening of the new Orpheum on Ninth and Broadway. That's um, the one that's there now. Then that's the one that's there now. And that one I'm about to get into because it's caught up in a whole scandal of stuff. Mm. Mm. The Orpheum that Drown managed continued to host VOD film until like 1929 when film began to take over and then slowly started to dwindle away. Drown had retired in the early 20s and continued to live like a, you know, a leisurely life. He was never murdered, cheated, or beaten, so I'm very happy about that. Oh. He wasn't even murdered once? I mean, I didn't do the best research. How did he die? I didn't even want to look it up. I, I didn't I couldn't even couldn't want to look it up. up. I think he's still alive right now. A man who's managing <laughs> the searching,
1: searching the Arctic for Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: 1929. So the merger happened. I, I read it happened in like 26, 27. It was between the Keith Albee a studio or corporation and then the Orpheum. And it created the Keith Albee Orpheum. They now own the vaudeville circuit, which was once the Orpheum. Their merger happens apparently 10 weeks after the jazz singer premieres in New York. It seemed to mark the rise of film and the decline of vaudeville because it was yeah. like they were singing and dancing on film and like...
1: Don't they don't we don't need to see real people Exactly. Here anymore. And we could
0: see the same performance over and over
1: and yeah. so No that, surprises. <laughs> no surprises. This was a time when people didn't want surprises anymore. Do you
0: know what was right around the corner? The biggest surprise.
1: <laughs> the biggest depression. <laughs> surprise! surprise!
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Death Bowl. So Keith Albee was a bigger A circuit than the Orpheum at the time. E.F. Albee had substantial stock in Keith Albee and was the president of the corporation. His lieutenant was a guy named J.J. Murdoch. Now, Murdoch brought in uh, Joe Kennedy into this deal. Kennedy, you know, the patriarch of the Kennedy family. Mm -hmm. A uh, very scary man. <laughs> Kennedy had a majority ownership over um, something called the Film Booking Office, which was a studio during the silent films era. It's called FBO. A ruthless businessman, apparently. Now Murdoch wanted to get into the film business because it was just starting to happen, and he didn't see it like slowing down anytime soon. Which you know he was wrong. <laughs> he looked to Kennedy to lead this company into the new business and put him in. A com- he'll put in Murdoch himself into a commanding role. Because he brought Kennedy in, he's hoping Kennedy will make him into the commander. In less than a year, Keith Albium orf- Orpheum was no more. It was gone. They turned it into something called the Radio Keith Orpheum because Albi was out. And its business oh refocused. God. Yeah.
1: I see where this is going. This <laughs>
0: is scary, isn't it? Yeah. And its business refocused by the participation of the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, founded by David Sarnoff, who also headed the first and most developed radio network, National Broadcasting System, NBC. The new agenda included RCA's development of an improved sound system for sound motion pictures, the adaptation of the Keith Orpheum operation to distribute and ex- exhibit movies like Coast to Coast, like a network of theaters, and they utilized Kennedy's FBO studios to produce all of, all of the talking pictures. Now, Albie was ousted from power. His name's no longer in the company, and Murdoch didn't get Albie's seat afterwards. Kennedy pretty much takes everything and then in 1948 sells it to Howard Hughes. Bam. That's how you do business. Oh, my God. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. And that's how Howard Hughes became president. Yeah. Well, Kennedy, uh, this doesn't relate to any of this other than the fact that I liked it. Uh, Kennedy was sleeping, having an affair with Gloria Swanson of Sunset Boulevard fame. The
1: Kennedys loved to have affairs with movie stars. And then
0: his daughter... His daughter, his daughter, his, his daughter. son.
1: <laughs> his daughter, Jackie.
0: <laughs> That's Joe Kennedy. Kennedy was known for digging up dirt uh, on competitors and blackmailing them into like unwanted business deals. Uh, the most interesting folklore of this, in my opinion, regarding this podcast, anyways, is as follows mm-hmm. In 1929, Alexander Pantages, owner of the Pantages dealer, which was the smaller of the Vaudeville theaters, was accused of raping a woman named either Esther or Eunice. I read both Pringle in a broom closet. Now, Pantages was a Greek Im- immigrant. And the tabloids of the day, which was the uh, alley examiner led by William Randolph Hearst, mm-hmm. like this, took daily beatings on on, on Pantages uh, because he was an immigrant. They kept calling him a beast. They, they just trashed him. They just tore him apart in the paper and they made Miss Pringle out to be like this saint and she's they made her out to sound a lot younger and more innocent than she was. So it went to trial and he was found guilty. Now, if this was true, good and great and he deserves it, he deserves everything that, that happens mm-hmm. to him. But there's a rumor out there that Kennedy paid Esther or Eunice Pringle to lie about the event hmm. or at least have it staged because Pantagus wouldn't sell the theater. And in the end, he had to sell RKO to Kennedy. Years later, either Esther or Eunice Pringle claimed to want to come clean about the story and then she mysteriously died of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> <laughs> How do you... That doesn't just happen. No, it does not. And then that's R- RKO pretty much... Uh, Turns the Orpheum into a movie house. And,
1: and RKO, it, I had no idea that stands for what was the the R, and then there's the Keith and the Orpheum. So yeah, the, the K Radio K Radio Keith Orpheum. I had no idea. Radio Keith. That, so that's why the RKO Tower is, I think, on top of the Orpheum, yeah, right? Yeah, I believe it is. Which is also our logo.
0: Popular in- entertainment shifted to movies. The Orpheum adapted to that in 1928, around the time that the merger happened, or like a like a year later. They kept the Worlisher organ. They installed it. Uh, so they played there and signed them pictures and stuff. In 1929, the Alley Times ran a story just saying that the, the Orphan was the last stronghold of the vaudeville west of the Rockies. But they were putting in all this film equipment, so you know they were they were still pumping it as vaudeville, but they're slowly switching over. A lot of vaudeville switched over to the million dollar theater in like the 40s because they started showing pictures at RKO. RKO was putting out pictures as well. They had a lot of really big ones. King uh, Kong. King Kong was one. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life was one. Uh, there's another big one. Who Framed Dr. Rabbit? <laughs> King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> Citizen Kane was an archaeo mm-hmm. picture. Hunchback of Notre Dame, King Kong, like you said. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, the best years of our lives. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, Fred and Ginger movies. It closes in the 70s just because the decline of everything. Orphan was one of the first ones mm-hmm. to close. But then it picks up uh, about the 20, uh, mm, 2000, and I think they said 2003. And it, t- it undertook a $3 million renovation. Uh, oh, which started in I got more
1: than the Million Dollar Theater? Do you
0: really want to know? It's now the most active. They have concerts there all the time. Tickets are really expensive.
1: Yeah, they have like really popular, cool, it's the cool place it, to go. It is concerts. the cool place
0: to go. And they film a lot of movies there. Like, That Thing You Do
1: <gasps> was filmed oh there.
0: My. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Take us there, sketch. I was surprised there wasn't more porn theaters in downtown. They're all on Hollywood Boulevard. Me
1: too. Wasn't I that, thought it, I thought that's what it became once all this started happening. Yeah, but uh, I guess um, we're the churches. There were too many. There were too many churches. Too many
0: churches I think we're both thinking of Forty Second Street, New York, in the seventies. Pretty sure they're, Broadway. they're <laughs> Broadway.
1: Our Broadway is nice and clean. We have churches. We have Mexican
0: churches, which is more faithful than other churches. Trust me. Imagine going to church and
1: in uh, I can't, I mean, downtown. I saw. Like, I witnessed. I, oh we, yeah, we right. went into the uh, the state and witnessed it. It's a lot. of It's weird. It's a lot of. Uh, like, jump up and down and waggle your fingers.
0: I'm pretty sure that wasn't church.
1: <laughs> <Pretty laughs> oh, I think it might have been the YMCA. <laughs> now, what I have is the last theater on the street, the United Artists Theater. Mm-hmm. So, first off, the United Artists was an independent film studio that was started by D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks, and Mary Pickford. So they started it to get away from the other big studios, so that they could make the movies they wanted to make. So they were like kinda like the first independent film production company. Were
0: they they were United Artists? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: The United Artists Theater was Mm -hmm. really the brainchild of Mary Pickford she was the one that really pushed for it. Charlie Chaplin was against it because he said that they should be focusing on making movies and not projecting them. <laughs> okay. It opened December 26, 1927 with the showing of My Best Girl, which starred, conveniently, Mary Pickford. Oh, not my best girl. You and Gloria Swanson. <laughs> Why do you go see a Gloria Swanson movie? So it's on 9th Street and... Broadway. Yeah. Its gothic style was chosen by Pickford because she went on a trip to Europe and saw all the castles and decided that she wanted one too. Oh. <laughs> so the theater it was actually from the beginning operated by Fox West Coast again. Okay. And it was called uh The Final Word in Theater Construction, which I guess is a good thing. I hope it had an air conditioning type system that had dehumidifiers in the main room so it would keep the viewers comfortable. Was that the mushroom
0: thing I kept reading about? Probably mushroom not. thing.
1: Ew, I, I read people
0: talking about like a mushroom air conditioning system under seats. Maybe not.
1: Like mushrooms were under every seat? I
0: don't know what they're talking about. That's why I hope you knew.
1: Um, and it could seat 2,214 people. Mm-hmm. It was equipped with a mighty Wurlitzer organ Ooh. another one it costs sixty thousand dollars that Just, sounds about right the organ was sixty thousand dollars and it was there up until 1955 where it was removed i have no idea where it went oh boy it had phone booths in there also that were modeled to look like catholic confessional booths <laughs> Uh they're still there actually really yeah and in the i don't think i think we could, they can't have phones in them anymore I guess they're just like booths. They're actually Catholic. (laughs) For your convenience. (laughs) In the 30s, Paramount Publix Theaters bought up all of Sid Grauman's holdings in the theaters downtown. And they thought that the Grauman name would be good for business. So they started calling it Grauman's United Artists, even though he had nothing to do (laughs) with it, which seems so illegal. I don't know how they did any of this back then. And then when the government started making all the major studios give up their theaters as part of the antitrust laws again, for some reason, United Artists was able to take control of their theater, I guess, because they weren't that big of a company. Right. And then in 1955, the United Artists became the second theater in L.A. equipped to project 70 millimeter movies. The first one in the city was the Egyptian Theater. And... It was as such that the movie Oklahoma began a fifty-two week run <laughs> at the theater. That's a year, that a year. of Oklahoma. Oh, wow! And then after the fifty-two week run was up, the theater was closed. <laughs> <laughs> and then in, in nineteen sixty one, it was still uh, you know owned by the United Artists Theater Circuit. So then it reopened then as the Alameda Theater, which showed Mexican films. But that didn't work out, and then they closed again in 1962. And then after that, it changed hands a few times, showing movies sporadically, until it closed for good as a film theater in 1989. And then from 1989 to 2010, it was the Los Angeles University Cathedral, and that was the church that was run by the televangelist Dr. Gene Scott. Who's very famous in LA history? Uh-huh. He had, uh, you know, like he would broadcast his Sunday sermons and he was one of the mm. wacky, over the top. He was the guy that urged the Gulf War President Bush regarding Iraq to nuke him in the name of Jesus. <laughs> he's the guy who put the, the big neon Jesus save signs. Oh, really? Yeah, the, the ones that they were on top of the United Artists building. I always thought it was Jesus shaved. So then in 2005, Scott died. And in 2010, his wife moved the church to Glendale and she took one of the Jesus save signs with her. But one of them is still on top of the building and they're going to keep it there for good. Yeah. So the building then went for sale for $15 million, but nobody was buying it. So they dropped it to $12 million, which seems really low to have a huge theater like that. Yeah. I can tell you're interested. (laughs) $12 million. It was bought by the Ace Hotel, which just opened up like less than a month ago. The ACE, is it's this hip upscale hotel chain from Portland, Oregon. They have locations in Portland, Seattle, Palm Springs, New York, London, and Panama City, and at Los Angeles. It has 182 rooms and a very popular rooftop bar. They now run the theater there, which is called the Theater at Ace Hotel. It's no longer the United Artists Theater. It's the home base of the L.A. Dance Project, which is run by Benjamin Milpied, who is the husband of Natalie Portman, slash the choreographer of Black Swan. The guy who ruined my life, okay. The guy who stole Natalie Portman (laughs) from you. Now the theater will be housing dance and a few other live musical performances, but it seems like the days of showing movies there are over, at least for now. The theater's first show actually is going to be on Valentine's Day, which is a few days from now. And the ACE is now the flagship of the revitalization efforts that are going right now in the Broadway district. So now we'll talk about that. Okay. Okay. For a long time, the Los Angeles Historical Theater Foundation was like the guardian of the Broadway theaters. They tried a lot of times very successfully to get as many of the theaters as they could to grant them cultural historical monument status so that they would be protected from any structural remodeling or demolishing or anything. They also had a team of unpaid volunteers that would keep an eye on all of the theaters to make sure that no illegal changes were being made to them. They were all armed. In, now, the big thing that's happening now, in 2008, a 10-year, $40 million campaign was mm-hmm. started by Councilman Jose Wezar called Bringing Back Broadway. And it was launched to reactivate the street, which is the word they're using. And in the campaign, the plans were to get the remaining theaters going again and give them new life and to start a whole new theater district there. The plans, they wanted to get new businesses to come to the area and move into all the commercial space that was right now currently vacant. And to get all the office spaces on the upper floors of all these buildings going again in Mm -hmm. the form of businesses and also affordable housing. And these, these upper floors on the street, they have a million square feet worth of space Jeez. that have been empty for decades. Oh, rats. They're currently, in the process, they're shrinking the street from four to three traffic lanes. And they're doing that so then they're widening the sidewalks to oh. make more room for pedestrians to walk around. And they're going to have more trees, uh, sidewalk cafes, a bunch of benches you could sit on. And that this should all be done. Well, the street work should be done by the end of this summer. They also want to preserve the street's history and the culture and even give all the theaters, give them new marquees and neon signs that like stick out into the street and that actually work. And then biggest of all, their dream has always been to get the streetcar back but it's had a lot of financial troubles but in 2012 they were approved to be able to tax the downtown landowners up to 85 million wow. to get a downtown streetcar going again so it seems like it's happening the plans currently under environmental review but they hope that it should be up and running by 2016 okay and meanwhile the street it's starting to come back to life a little bit and what seemed impossible by getting the united artists theater going back again they got they did it and so i mean they can do it. Uh, Yeah, okay. They have the, like we were talking about, the Last Remaining Seats program. It shows old movies in uh, the Los Angeles Theater, the Orpheum, the Million Dollar Theater. Mm -hmm. January 25th, just a couple weeks ago, was the six-year anniversary of Bringing Back Broadway. They had a bunch of talks and tours, and a lot of the theaters were open to the public, and you could just go in. Mm -hmm. It was the first time in decades that so many of the theaters on that street were open all at one time. And Even a little further up north, where it all began, at the Merced Theater, they're getting... Getting a twenty-three million dollar upgrade to get it back in operation and they're gonna have it as the new home of channel thirty-five, the public access channel Oh, we gotta get in there. So things are starting to come together. The Rialto is an Urban Outfitters, but they still kept the marquee. That's uh, and a whole foods is coming to the area, which brings (sighs) us to our next topic, something we all know and love. (laughs) Gentrification. <laughs> Is
0: one of us currently going through gentrification right now?
1: <laughs> There's all these new hip stores and hotels that are mm-hmm. coming and they're all being accused of gentrification. They say it's not gonna happen because they're focused they're not focusing on closing all the ethnic places that are already there, but rather just opening up all the unused space. To so their credit, they are staying true to the architecture and the history of the area. Right. But gentrification, I mean it's, inev- it's really inevitable because it, it might not be their intention, but eventually all the little cheap stores that all the Spanish-speaking people, the ones who kept the area going and yeah. not from being demolished <laughs> for decades. <laughs> are going to be squeezed out. Yeah, well, they're gonna they're saying they're not going to do it, but then when things start getting nice, the rent's going to go up mm-hmm. and they can't afford it. Yeah. And then the people themselves, uh, the people that come there to be shop, let's be honest, immigrants. <laughs> and some, some people are not legal immigrants. Right. And when the area becomes more rich and has more, let's be honest, white people white. around, yeah. it could it's going to make people who are immigrants or not here legally sometimes, it's going to make them uncomfortable being there. Mm-hmm. So they take their business elsewhere. So those little shops might lose a lot of their support. Is this good? Is this bad? I don't know. And let's
0: that, not forget that they, you know, they'll be able to buy out these smaller stores too if they if they could. I and then some of these people are struggling. They have been struggling for a very long I time know. with these stores. Will take the opportunity to move out. But what they, what we're losing when they go is is an authenticity that's like you said kept it going for this whole time. It's funny that you're talking about them bringing back Broadway when Broadway is the one street for the most part. Like maybe the first half, or there's like a good chunk that between like third and maybe seventh that is left pretty much by itself because you can't put anything there. So Maine has changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Spring has changed a lot. (laughs) Uh, Broadway hasn't really changed a lot. And then you go over to like, you know, Grand has always been good. Olive and Hill have pretty much been fine but these other streets like beyond Broadway are are moving up and then you know
1: I I think because they had so many obstacles with like what they can and can't do in those buildings which kind of hurt it Mm -hmm. but I don't know they're getting it going again
0: like right this moment right now where like the periphery of Broadway (laughs) is like you know it has bars it has like places to go and it has the last bookstore which I you know like it has the
1: Cecil Hotel which Mm -hmm. is great Mm -hmm. hopefully Uh, the Cecil Hotel gets more business from all this (laughs) The room's thirst for blood. <laughs> we need a sacrifice
0: in downtown. We just need it. I'm very interested in seeing how this um, – how it spreads out because you're, you're seeing it like getting closer to you. You've seen it go like south. You're, you know, Echo Park uh, mm-hmm. obviously is not the Echo Park that <laughs> I, I grew up in. And then it's moving like across the river now. It's going yeah. to like Boyle Heights is becoming like an area yeah. like this and Highland it's Park weird. is – so I'm I'm am interested in seeing how it spreads out and what stops it where the border of like oh we can't go past like oh we can't do this in City Terrace that's not cool we can't do this in this is fun
1: anymore <laughs> I, I was reading a thing that was saying in what what's happening because similar things are happening in New York which it could be a glimpse of what LA has to deal with in the future because yeah. things are getting they're so always expensive. ahead of the game I know God. what they're trying to do is like you know things are going to get nicer and more expensive. But it should be mandated and also people who have (laughs) consciences to, you know, keep prices reasonable for people, you know, who can't afford it. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Don't push it. Don't push all the the people who have been struggling here. Don't make everybody move to Riverside County. You know, (laughs) don't make make everybody move to San Bernardino
1: And then when they move there, let's put a big fence. So a fence <laughs> like a wall, because fences are easy to cross, let's be honest. <laughs> fences have footholds.
0: We'll, we'll build a Warner Fox Theater over there, whatever. <laughs> we'll give you whatever you
1: want, <laughs> as long as it's closed. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to Bill Counter mm-hmm. from the Los Angeles Theater's Blogspot website. It was, it's a really good website. It has everything... We stole everything from it. Anything you want to know about any theater in L.A., he has pictures, like archival pictures, Mm -hmm. new pictures, everything, every piece of information. And I was sending him emails. He was responding. He was really helpful. He put up with my ignorance. And I hope he doesn't sue me for saying his name, but he's probably not going to hear this because nobody will. Nobody will. Final thoughts? It was a lot of fun reading about how awful Joe Kennedy
0: is. And now I'm going to be whacked by the the Kennedy family. (laughs) That's the last you'll ever hear of me. The Kennedy curse will spread to you. (laughs) It it was nice. Uh, It was nice. It was nice. (laughs) Yet
1: again. That's been LA Meekly. (laughs) Catchphrase pending.